registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. Happy New Year. I am excited to say that this is officially one year since I started this podcast. It's crazy to think how quickly the time has gone by. So we are in 2022 and maybe some of you are setting goals or intentions for the new year. Maybe that's not really your thing, but there is certainly a lot of messaging out there about resetting or detoxing, which are really all just disguised as diets or supplements. And I really encourage you to try to disconnect first and foremost from that type of messaging, especially if it doesn't make you feel motivated or inspired to make truly sustainable changes. So if it's something that you're only going to do for 30 days just to mentally make you feel better, but you don't see yourself sticking to it, I'd encourage you to reevaluate. Is there something that you can do that is not just going to carry you 30 days, but carries you at least into you know, the next year? So today's episode is going to mostly be about the difference between a food sensitivity and a food allergy. And I'm also going to talk about the Whole30 diet. Now, the Whole30 diet is not new. This is something that's been around for a while now, and it's very popular. I often see a lot of people doing this as a way to reset or restart the new year, and I kind of want to talk about some of the pros and cons of this because I've been a dietitian for several years now. I've worked with thousands of clients, and I think it's really important for me to share my perspective as a professional and also from what I've seen and the impact that it's had on some of my clients. So let's start off with the definition of a food sensitivity. Now, when an individual has a food sensitivity, this is sometimes often referred to also as a food intolerance. And it really means that the body has a hard time processing or digesting components, which is often a protein or a sugar within a food. So food sensitivities really don't have a standard medical definition, but we do know that people do have food sensitivities and they are common, especially among people who have pre-existing digestive issues. So for example, if you've been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease, you're much more likely to have uh, symptoms of food intolerances or sensitivities. A good example of this too is, uh, you know, I work with a lot of athletes and when they are in the peak of their training, that is a high level of stress on the body. And during that time, my clients will find, oh, I become very sensitive to certain foods. I find myself more bloating or more gas associated with foods. And those are situational 
conditions where an individual might just have more inflammation in the gut, more stress and inflammation in the body, and therefore they become more sensitive to foods. So it's important to kind of think of this, of where this root cause is coming from. And there's many different root causes of why someone can have food sensitivities or intolerances, and we will talk more about that. So the gut health aspect of this is really important. You need to have a healthy gut to avoid having additional or the onset of certain food sensitivities. Some of the symptoms that you might find with food intolerances or sensitivities would be things like bloating, having a lot of gas, having stomach pains, diarrhea. Those are kind of the more obvious ones. This is definitely something I experienced as a kid with my lactose intolerance. But then you get more into the symptoms of food sensitivities like having migraines or headaches, runny nose or post-nasal drip, and then general fatigue, right, which can be so many different things. This is just generally feeling tired all the time. You might even find that you're a little bit more depressed or you know, notice an impact on your mood or focus. So in people who have food intolerances, the amount that the person eats would really determine the severity of their symptoms. So let's start with talking about the most common food sensitivities and intolerances. So the high FODMAP list, these carbohydrates that some people just cannot digest very well, they might be lacking the enzymes required to metabolize them, and therefore these foods travel undigested into the colon, the lower part of the GI tract, and they ferment, and that can create a lot of GI discomfort. Now, when I work with patients with the low FODMAP diet, I typically will do a modified low FODMAP diet. This just really brings us back to the point that if you're consuming a smoothie for breakfast that has dates and banana and honey, you know, avocado, all of these high FODMAP foods, that's probably going to create some GI distress for you. So I'm not going to completely eliminate all FODMAPs for a patient, especially because I'm trying to maintain optimal health and I don't want them to limit their diet extensively. So we'll do a modified version. So maybe we'll make some swaps and do maple syrup instead of honey, for example. But the FODMAP group is very popular, and you can listen to a previous episode that I've done on that. Lactose intolerance is another one. This is a case where the body is lacking the enzyme that is needed to digest lactose, the sugar that's found in milk. And there's actually some good research here to show that I believe it's a lactobacillus strain has been shown to help improve lactose intolerance. And this is definitely true for me. I noticed that as soon as incorporating a probiotic, into my diet with a broad uh, spectrum of strains, I can tolerate a little bit of lactose here and there without issues. It's much better than taking a lactate pill in my own experience. And then there's fructose intolerance. So this is one we don't typically think of. So fructose is a sugar that's present in fruit, some vegetables, as well as honey. And some people just lack the enzyme to digest fruit. Although this is rare, I know at least a few clients and friends who are unable to digest fructose. And there's also some hereditary factors that can play into it. And then we have gluten intolerance. So I 
just talked about this on a previous episode, so you can refer back to that. Um, But the symptoms of having gluten intolerance might include brain fog, joint pain, fatigue, depression, anxiety, a lot of the ones that we talked about with just food sensitivities in general. And this is different from celiac disease. It's not the same as celiac disease. And then we have salicylates. So a salicylate intolerance is a reaction to this compound that is present in many plant foods, including fruits, vegetables, herbs, and spices. They're also common in artificial flavorings and preservatives, things like toothpaste, chewing gum, and candies. So salicylates include foods like tomatoes, peppers, broccoli, seaweed, spinach, cucumbers, avocado. There's a whole list that you can look up online, but these are healthy foods, you know? So these surprise people when they're looking at different food sensitivities and there are some people that do react to these compounds. And then there are amines, which are compounds that are in fermented foods like sauerkraut, pickles, cheeses. There's nitrates that we find in processed foods such as preserved meats. There's MSG, which is in processed foods as well. So there are so many different categories of either compounds in food like proteins or sugars that can create food sensitivities in people. So it's really tricky. And you can see why at this point, someone would be very attracted to the idea that they can just go to a lab, give their blood and find out every single thing that their body is sensitive to. And we're going to talk about why that promise is offering much more than it can actually deliver. So what is a food allergy? A food allergy is different from a food sensitivity, and it's when the body's immune system reacts to a food or a substance in the food, and it's making antibodies against it to fight and protect you. This response is known as an IgE and or a histamine response, and it's often immediate. So if you have a food allergy, for example, let's say peanuts, you are going to know pretty quickly after eating that food, and God forbid, you could actually die from that reaction. It can be life-threatening, for example, peanuts, which can cause anaphylaxis. With a food allergy, the definition and the diagnosis are very clear. Now, if you do have a food allergy or food sensitivity, you should always work with a healthcare provider to identify, you know, how to navigate foods and labels because there's things like cross-contamination to be concerned with, and obviously that could be life-threatening. The million-dollar question is, should I invest in food sensitivity testing? So let's look at the research Organizations, including the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, have recommended against using IgG testing to diagnose food intolerances and sensitivities. This type of IgG-based food sensitivity tests have not been proven to identify food sensitivities, and it's very often that they have false positives. So you might get a test result back and it says you're intolerant to olive oil or asparagus and this could be false and then you cut out these incredibly healthy foods and all for, you know, whatever you're paying for these about 3 to 500 dollars for some of these tests. So the real 
treatment for these food sensitivities is getting to the root cause. And more often than not, I find the root cause to be things like overgrowth. So candida, yeast overgrowth, you might have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. You might have a lot of stress in your life, whether it be physical or mental stress. You might be drinking a lot of alcohol or caffeine or taking a lot of NSAIDs, those non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs which can also increase the intestinal hyperpermeability. So it's really important to work with a practitioner because, you know, it might seem like a financial investment to do that, but it's not only going to save you a ton of money on actually getting to the root cause, but it's also going to help you maintain a really wide variety of healthful foods in your diet and not create fear that are false positive fears. So addressing the root cause, as I talked about, those overgrowth, intestinal hyperpermeability, leaky gut, things like that, those can all create situations where you will react to foods. But if you address the root cause, you will fix it. So a good example of this is if you have a leak in your ceiling and you just keep putting you know, some tape or, you know, whatever over it, that tape is eventually going to wear away and that leak eventually might cause your entire ceiling to collapse. So you can't just keep putting these little band-aids on health problems. You have to treat the root cause. The gold standard for food sensitivities is an elimination diet. And elimination diets are definitely challenging, especially if you try to do them on your own but it is effective and they're low cost, right? Because they're not something you have to spend thousands of dollars to try to figure out. They are something that you do through diet, taking out the most common sensitivities that you might have. And when you work with a professional such as myself who specializes in GI issues, I skip a lot of steps. So if I look at all of your symptoms, I look at your stool test, you don't have any candida overgrowth, maybe you don't have leaky gut, uh, maybe you have hormone imbalance, it's really easy for me to check some things off like, oh, okay, so it's unlikely histamine because you're not having any skin issues. You're not really itchy. And so then we can move to say the FODMAPs, for example. So it's a lot easier than trying to do it on your own and doing it on your own can also be very risky because you're cutting out a lot of foods that can be very healthy for you. Now, the elimination of foods for a diet could be things like histamine, it could be FODMAPs, it could be um, the salicylates that we talked about, but again, it really depends on the person and their symptoms and also important to note that after the elimination period, there is a very structured reintroduction period where the foods that were eliminated are reintroduced one at a time every three to four days. And this is what helps us identify certain foods that can trigger negative responses. I often ask clients to keep a food diary, and there are also apps out there like Kara that allows you to track food alongside your symptoms. So let's talk about the Whole30 diet. So the Whole30 diet is a viral health movement that has just been increasing in popularity, and it encourages the followers to cut out alcohol, sugar, grains, legumes, dairy, and additives from their diet for just 30 days. And it is advertised as a total lifestyle change. 
Now, when clients come to me and they tell me they've done the Whole30 diet, they typically tell me that they did the Whole30 diet for 30 days and now they're afraid to eat grains, legumes, dairy, anything of that sort because they are convinced that those foods are bad and that's why they cut them out of their diet. I also have clients who do the Whole30 diet and they say, you know what? It really opened my eyes to the fact that I wasn't eating any vegetables or I wasn't eating enough protein or, hey, maybe I did notice dairy was causing me significant bloating or diarrhea. So I can see some of the pros in the Whole30 diet because it is based off of eating whole unprocessed foods. So by all means, yes, absolutely, I am an advocate for eating whole unprocessed foods. You can have meat and seafood and eggs, fruits and vegetables, fats and herbs and spices and seasonings, and those things are incredible, especially for your gut health, but just limiting your diet to take out things like dairy, which is a great source of protein and calcium and certain products that have probiotics in it or grains that can actually really help with digestion or help provide more fiber and energy for maybe someone who especially needs more carbohydrates if they're very active. And then, of course, you know, there's things like alcohol and sugar that, you know, we don't love to see be a majority of someone's diet, but can be part of a healthy lifestyle. And the Whole30 really says that you cannot go off of the protocol or else you're really breaking it. So even having one glass of wine or, you know, one little bite of something with sugar is breaking the, I'm doing air quotes, rules. The other thing that I don't love about the Whole30 diet is they talk about it as a way to identify food sensitivities or intolerances. And while I do understand that a lot of these foods have been shown in research to be common food sensitivities, we are still missing other groups of foods. So like I mentioned, we have the amines and the salicylates and... FODMAPs, for example, that, you know, if you did this and you had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, for example, and you were eating lots of fruits and vegetables and things like that, you might not feel better because you're not doing an elimination diet properly with a trained professional. You're really just doing a 30 day, what I consider, you know, really promoted as a a weight loss diet. And that's what most people are doing it for. And that's fine. If you want to lose weight and you want to eat better, that's absolutely necessary to achieve those goals. But if you just want to improve your health, you know, you don't have to completely eliminate certain groups. So I would not consider the Whole30 diet to be a true elimination diet, especially because you're not working with a health professional who's able to identify your symptoms and put that alongside what could be going on and what you could be having reactions to. If you are interested in identifying food sensitivities and intolerances, the key is to do a proper elimination diet. That is really the gold standard. It's cheaper. It's definitely not easy. I'm not going to say that it's easy, but it it's going to be a lot easier if you work with a health professional and it's going to save you a lot of time if you do it properly. Some other tips for avoiding food sensitivities are to vary the diet. 
uh, way too often I see people eating the same thing over and over again. And this is even more common if you already have digestive issues because it can create a lot of fear around food. So then the second that you find foods that you know, digest well, you eat a lot of those foods and you eat them all the time and you don't try to incorporate new foods. Or maybe you're just picky. That's also a situation where it's really important that you just diversify because the more you diversify, the less chance you have of your body eventually seeing that food as some sort of outside invader There's always going to be periods of stress in your life where your gut is a little inflamed or irritated. And if you're constantly eating the same things all the time, you're more likely to have a food sensitivity. So vary the diet, switch your protein up every three days. So if you do chicken a lot, maybe try doing turkey. If you're doing lentils, maybe try doing some beans with quinoa. So just kind of mixing in and swapping these different foods to create more variety. And the gut microbiome loves variety. Avoiding high quantities of high-risk things like caffeine and alcohol, especially staying away from NSAIDs, things like aspirin, um, really spicy foods, those types of things can increase gut permeability and just make you more vulnerable. And then limiting exposure to pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides that are used on crops. Those things can also irritate the gut lining and create more uh, hyperpermeability. This is obviously not something that if you're listening right now, you can do, but getting breastfed for the first year of life, this can make a huge difference in the outcome of a child's trajectory of food sensitivities. You're much more likely to have better gut health and immune function and less allergies overall if you receive breast milk. So if you are having kids in the future or plan to have a family, then this is something to keep in mind. And the last tip is the most important tip when it comes to gut health is to make sure that you do identify the root cause. So if you are highly stressed, if you do have some sort of overgrowth or infection, a parasite, a yeast overgrowth, if you have hormone imbalance, those things have to be addressed before you can even do an elimination diet because that would be your root cause. On a positive note to start the new year, I am fully booked on my group coaching program, which is incredible. I am so excited to start the next round. If you want to join the waitlist for the next round, you can go to my website, nutritionrewired.com. And we're also doing a little giveaway challenge where if you make a recipe from any one of my books every week for the next five weeks and you tag me on some sort of social media, Instagram is probably preferable for most people at Nutrition Rewired. You will win one CBD product of choice. So you could pick any choice. Highly recommend the sleep product. And then you also get $100 off of a stool test. And then you also get one free 30-minute consultation with me, and I will review your food record and any supplements that you are taking. So you basically have full access to me for 30 minutes to ask me any questions that you want. This is a way to get you eating new foods, diversifying, trying new recipes, having fun in the kitchen. And obviously I am here promoting my book because I wrote it and I love it. And people have absolutely seen results from incorporating more diversity into their diets. So thanks again for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.